Psalm 15. It's actually going to fit into the sermon I'm going to share with us this morning. Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Lord, we read in your word that there's a a time coming where everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And only that which is standing on that which is eternal, your enduring word, and that's who you are, Lord, will be able to be unshaken. Father, I pray today that we would truly be your holy people, a people set apart to do your purpose and will. I ask, Father, that you would speak into our lives today, that we would have a deeper understanding of the very nature of your wisdom, that we would grasp, Lord, our response to you, Father. Lord, you do so much for us. We could talk for an eternity of all the wonderful things that you have done for humanity. We wouldn't cover all the bases. We all have amazing stories. But Lord, I pray today that we would understand that there's an expectation on your part for us, that we would embrace your ways, that we would walk in your path, that we would understand the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness, the way that brings true success, true hope, true joy. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. I will come back to Mark. I'm giving, you know what's happening right now in my life? I'm, I'm really busy. I'm in a wedding frenzy right now. You know, this is summertime, and I just, I'm just doing wedding after wedding after wedding. And so, you know, what people don't understand is when you're the officiating minister, it actually, you know, takes a lot of your time, especially when they're people from our church family and they want you to come to their reception. And how many know weddings just eat up your day? You know, you, how many know that's true? Just kind of, that's the end of that day. So, you know, and I don't, yeah. And it's fun and all the rest of it, but it's, that's your day. And so, it, you know, Saturdays is a day that I actually work on my sermons as well as another day of the week. So my time is dwindling on me. Anyways, Philip Yancey in his incredible book, Disappointment with God. How many of you have ever read that book? Some of you? It's really a really fascinating book. He shares his own personal struggle with faith in the context of Bible college. And, you know, a lot of times we think that kids go to Bible college, you know, there's this really spiritual people, but sometimes parents just send their kids to Bible college, you know. Or sometimes they go and they have the wrong understanding, and sometimes they go because it's an expectation. They grew up in a family, and that's what their family wants them to do, and they go. And so he ended up going to a school somewhere in South, near South Carolina, somewhere in South Carolina. And so he said he had two responsibilities that were assigned to him. And I remember this when I was in Bible college back in the day because they would assign you responsibilities. One was that he had to go out and share his faith across the street at the University of South Carolina, share his faith with, you know, non-believers. The only problem was Philip Yancey was an agnostic. I forgot to mention that. So he had a problem because he didn't even have faith. I mean, he grew up in it, he understood it, but he did not experience it himself, and so he had all these doubts in his mind. So how many know he didn't pass that course? He just didn't do it. The second responsibility was simply that he had to pray with four other young men. It was kind of a mentoring, nurturing, you know, sharing of your time together. And so they would start praying, and he would never pray. Because, listen, he didn't even know if God existed. He was like, I don't know. And he says, one night while they were gathered for this moment of prayer, Philip made this tentative step towards God. He said, God, and they were kind of surprised because he had never prayed. You know, they had prayed and they'd wait and he didn't pray, so then they'd move on, right? So then he started, God, here we are, supposed to be concerned about those 10,000 students at the University of South Carolina are going to hell. 
Well, you know, I don't care if they go to hell, if there is one. That's how he starts out. <laughs> yeah. Supposed to shock these other four guys, right? I don't even care if I go there. No one stirred. No one tried to stop me. I continued praying. For some reason, I just started talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then it happened. In the middle of my prayer, just as I was describing how little I cared about our assigned targets of compassion, I saw the story in a new light. I'd been visualizing the scene as I was speaking, and I saw this old-fashioned Samaritan dressed in robes in a turban bending over a dirty, blood-crusted form in a ditch. But suddenly, in the internal screen of my brain, those two figures changed. The kindly Samaritan took on the face of Jesus, and the Jew, that pitiful victim of a highway robbery, took on another face that I knew all too well, my own. In a flash, I saw Jesus reaching down with a moistened rag to cleanse my wounds and staunch the flow of blood. And as he bent over, I saw the wounded robbery victim open his eyes, which was myself, purse my lips, and as if in watching in slow motion, I saw myself spit in the face of Jesus. I saw that. I, who did not believe in visions or in biblical parables or even in Jesus. It stunned me. Abruptly, I stopped praying, got up, and I left the room. All that evening, I thought, what happened? It wasn't exactly a vision, more like a daydream parable with a moral twist. Still, I couldn't put it behind me. What did it mean? Was it genuine? I wasn't sure, but I knew that my cockiness had been shattered. On that campus, I had always found security in my agnosticism. No longer, I caught a new glimpse of myself. Perhaps in all my self-assured and mocking skepticism, I was the neediest person of all. And since that February night, I've been on a slow and steady pilgrimage to reclaim what I had once rejected as religious nonsense. I received eyes of faith that opened up belief in an unseen world. You know, Yancey's mockery of faith was actually seen for what it was, spitting in the face of God. Grace despised, compassion rejected, yet this vision of love brought brokenness and eventually brought a full surrender to Christ. What started in unbelief possibly to shock some of his classmates ended up shocking himself. From contempt to commitment. It's a journey that many people have made. You know, the key to knowing, however, starts with commitment on our part, no matter how tentative. What started as a tentative prayer one day in Philip Yancey's life ended with a transformed life. You know, the great need in our world today is not more information. How many know we're on information overload? You know, if you want information, you, know, you just pop in the computer and, you know, we're just, you know, what do you, looking for the information. It's all readily accessible. So we don't have an information problem, folks. You know what we need? We need wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what we know and how to apply that knowledge to life. And I'm going to say there's a lot of people that are very smart, they have a lot of knowledge, but they, don't have, they have no wisdom. You say, how can you make a statement like that? Well, I'm going to point out to you, as the scriptures, what is biblical wisdom? How do we get this wisdom? How do we take what we know and actually apply it into our lives? Because, you know, I think... One of the great deceptions, and I think it happens in Christianity, is because we think we know something, we think we're doing it. How many have ever been guilty of that? You know, you think you know it, but you're not really doing it. Or you have information, and you know what should be done, but you're not doing it. Can I tell you, you don't even know what you think you know. You just think you know. And that's not just a riddle. You know, you have to think about what I'm just saying there. Knowledge alone isn't going to help you. See, we, we have more education today than we've ever had before. We're one of the most knowledgeable cultures going, and yet what I'm seeing is knowledge isn't really helping us that much. We have huge issues in relationships. We don't even know how to get along with each other. We have all kinds of fragmentation. Some people, you know, yeah, we have enough skills to maybe get by at our work, 
but a lot of times we have conflict and issues going on even in our place of employment, and we can really see that where this really turns up is in social relationships. You know, young people today are having a hard time building friendships even though we have more means of communication. Everyone's sitting in front of their little, you know, iPhone or, you know, and, and texting away. And you know the kicker is there's two people sitting in a restaurant and they're both sitting down. I'm going, what in the world's going on there? Has anybody noticed that? How many think that's kind of ridiculous? You know? But you see, we've, been, we've opened ourselves up to that because, you know, think about it. We're at home, we're having a dinner, and we're all sitting there talking to each other, and all of a sudden the phone rings. It's all of a sudden the phone call is more important than what's happening at the table. Isn't that true? Well, jump up to the phone, you know, and it's some telemarketer anyways. <laughs> you know, what's our problem? We don't understand wisdom. We don't understand because wisdom will give us the right priorities. And folks, today, we are skewed when it comes to right priorities. We are so messed up in this area. The key to unlocking wisdom is actually found in one word, commitment. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue today that if you don't have commitment first, you will never have wisdom. As a matter of fact, the scripture says here in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so I would argue with you today that if you don't fear God, you lack wisdom. You may be bright. You may have all kinds of information. You might have all kinds of knowledge, but you lack biblical wisdom. I'm going to tell you what biblical wisdom is. You're going to love it. It's very exciting what God wants to give to us. You know, this isn't just a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That's the other problem I have with Christianity sometimes. You know, oh, I found the light. I gave my life to Jesus. Do you know how many times I've committed my life to Jesus in the last 40 years? Over and over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, I would argue that if you're going to stay married for a long period of time, you're going to have to renew your commitment. Why? Because you and I are changing. Your spouse is changing. The world around you is changing. You have to keep renewing commitment. As Christians, we have to keep renewing our commitment to God. You know, if you're going to stay, you know, I've been a pastor for 33 years. You know, I'll tell you, it's interesting, the statistics. Only 5% of people who start as pastors retire as pastors. 5%. Because you have to keep renewing your commitment. That's what has to happen. That's what wisdom is. It starts with this word commitment. I know it's almost as if I'm using a curse word right now. It's the word that our culture hates. We don't ever talk about it. You know, we'll use all kinds of other vocabulary, but you talk about the word commitment in this culture today, and people bristle, they get upset. What are you talking about? You know, they don't get it. Here in Proverbs chapters 1, verses 2 to 6, the promise that if we take to heart the instruction given, we will gain wisdom. You know, my prayer for you today is that you will develop an appetite for biblical wisdom, that you will start growing in this wisdom, that you will continue on this pathway, and that you will arrive at the destination, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, and you will become a wise person. You won't just become an old person, you'll become a wise person, you know? There's a big difference. I see a lot of people that, you know, I see young people smarter than old people. I see younger people having more wisdom than older people. It's got nothing to do with age, folks. It has to do with the application of what I'm going to talk about today. Wisdom. Biblical wisdom. Let's take a look. We're going to look at the keys to unlocking wisdom. And it's found in this idea of commitment. The three keys to wisdom. First of all, we need to understand the nature of wisdom. What is it? Well, Solomon, in writing the book of Proverbs, is trying to disseminate wisdom in order to have a more productive and prosperous society. And we read in chapter 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. By the way, he was noted for his wisdom. But you know, one thing I notice about Solomon, if he was as wise as he was supposed to be, he sure messed up at the end. He probably didn't recommit himself to wisdom. He started out good. 
You know, I've, I've seen a lot of Christians start out good. But you know what's really disheartening? Patty, is this not true? Is watching how many people fall off on the race while you're running. That's discouraging, isn't it? It's disheartening. Some of you know what I'm talking about. People you used to be walking with and fellowship with, you go, where are they today? They're still not walking on the path. The first key to wisdom is to understand what it is. He goes on to say, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight. And I'm going to quote from the New American Standard Version. It says, uh, basically, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Solomon writes, to know wisdom and instruction. The Hebrew concept of knowing is not intellectual knowledge. Instead, it's the idea of knowing by experience. In other words, it's an experiential knowledge. It's not... It's not the knowledge you get by a book. It's not the knowledge you get just from being educated and being in a classroom and learning a concept. It's, you know, it's like all these graduates they get out of school. There's a big difference between what you've been taught and what you're going to experience. You have to make big adjustments. How many here, you know what I'm talking about? You have bright young people come, they've got to learn. They've got to experience life. They've got to experience the things hands-on. They need that opportunity, but you know what? It's one thing to learn it in a book. It's another thing to live it. How many can say amen to that? Different world, you know? You can be taught all the ideals. You know, it's, it's so funny. You can have all the stuff explained to you, and you get out there, and all of a sudden, you become like deer in the headlamps. I mean, because things never go the way you're explained that they're supposed to go. You know, and when you're going to be trained to be a pastor, I love this. You know, if you've never done it, you don't get it. It's messy. Why? You're dealing with people. How many here, your parents, raise your hand, your parents. How many here say, it doesn't matter how many books you read on parenting, most of them don't know what they're talking about anyways. <laughs> you know? And what I get a bang at is when people who've never parented start telling you how to parent. Or when the person who's parenting has only had one kid, they've had one experience. And how many know the next kid that comes along is totally different? And everything you learned about parenting goes out the window. Right? And sometimes people have three kids and they all turn out a certain way. And the fourth kid really changes their whole parenting equation. You know what? You're never an expert. That's what I'm trying to tell you. There's no such thing as being an expert when you're dealing with people. There's so many things to learn. I've been at this so long, I just go, you know, I, I used to think there's, you know, I'm, I'm going to run out of what's new. I haven't yet. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how many different stories you hear and how many different things people get into. I go, I've never heard this one before. This is the most amazing one yet, you know. I should write a book, but then I'd be in trouble because I've been pastoring one church too long. It's only as we commit ourselves to the Lord that we can begin to understand and experience wisdom. Jesus said the very same concept in John 7, 17. He says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So what is Jesus saying? You can only, ex you can only know for sure if you commit first. That's the point. Wisdom follows commitment. It's not the other way around. You see the difference? You know, our culture, you know, is, is really having a challenge with this. Derek Kidner says, The fall of man was a choosing of what was assumed to make one wise, but flouted the first principle of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Isn't that true? They rejected God. They rejected what God had said and embraced their own course. And they got into trouble. You know, as a society, we tend to commit only after we know. How many know that's kind of true? You know, everything today is designed. You know, you'll get an advertisement. 30-day money-back guaranteed. Try the product. If you don't like it, send it back. I mean, how many guarantees do we have in life? I mean, you get all, I mean, that's all part of advertising. You know, if you don't like this product, you know, don't just bring it back. You know, you don't have to keep it. In other words, experience it first, then make the commitment. And you know what's happened in our culture? We've taken that idea into personal relationships. How do you know that, Pastor? I'll tell you how I know. Because today, people don't get married, they live together. And why do we live together? Because we're not sure we want to make this a permanent commitment. 
Isn't that true? And you know what I find ironic? The scriptures are very clear, very clear teaching. It says sex outside of marriage is a sin. And yet, you know, 80% of all the marriages I do now, they're living together. And you know, that's not shocking. That doesn't even shock me. You know what's really shocking me now? The kids that are living together come from Christian homes, a lot of them, and that's not even shocking. What's really shocking to me is that the parents think it's okay. Their parents think it's okay. That's what you need to hear. Let me point something out to you about why this is wrong and why this is detrimental and why we're going to have even more problems in our culture today. Because when people are living together, and now if you've gotten married since you've lived together, this is not an excuse for getting a divorce. I'm prefacing my remark, okay? But here's what they find out. The University of Wisconsin, how many know that's, a, that's, an, that's an institution that's not church supported, okay? They have no, no, no agenda. They just want to find out what happens to people. They did a, you know, a sociological study between people who got married and didn't live together and people who got married you know, be, as a result of living together. And they found out that the people who got married after living together was twice as likely to get a divorce. And I'm going to tell you why. I, you know, no, they, don't, they don't even figure it out. I should write to them and help them. You know? Here's why I think it, this, this is the real problem. Number one, why do people live together? I don't know if this is going to work, so I'm not willing to make this commitment. So therefore, it's an issue of trust. I've learned one thing about human relationships. Every relationship is based on trust. And if you're telling somebody right off the bat, I don't know if I can really trust you, that says more about who you are. And people who are willing to say, I am committed no matter what, no matter what I find out, I am committed. That's a different kind of person. Now, you know, I always have a motivation for what I'm doing. I had us read Psalm 15. Who, who can really stand in God's presence? And what does it say there? It says, the person who swears an oath to his or her own hurt. When we make a vow before God, Lord, I vow before you, I'm going to take Patty, my beloved wife of 36 years, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. There have been a lot of good moments in our marriage. There's been moments I go, I don't like this moment. Especially when she's telling me what I'm doing wrong. You know, I don't like that moment. Right? Come on now. I'm just being honest. And you need to hear this. We need to hear this. What am I saying? I'm saying we're living in a culture today that is totally uncommitted, and we wonder why we're having problems in human relationships. And it's because we're violating the very first principle of relationship, which is commitment and trust. And the Bible teaches us the right way to behave, but we're so smart, we think God doesn't know what he's doing. We're going to help it out. We're going to figure it out for ourselves. I'm telling you, this is the key. You need to understand and you know, God's not going to reveal something to you. And Jesus said that you will not know if this is true until you make the commitment. You know, the world says, show it to me and I'll believe. Jesus says, believe and I'll show it to you. We've got it backwards, folks. And we think we're smart. But yet the studies are coming out in human relationships that are supporting God's viewpoint. And we're wondering why things aren't working. That's the reason. It's real clear. You know, a number of years ago, I actually had Dr. Bruce Walke as a professor. He's a biblical scholar in the Old Testament. He was, preaching, he was teaching from the book of Proverbs. And you know, he said something very interesting. He says, when you're committed to nothing, you're overcome by everything. Think about that. When you're committed to nothing, you're overcome by everything. We're a culture that's being overcome by everything. Because we don't even know what we stand for. We don't even know what we believe in anymore. This is a critical thing. Western civilization is being destroyed by a lack of commitment. You know, civilizations, and I said it last week and I'll say it again this week, 
because I'm going to try to say it a little different, but civilizations are built on commitment to a certain ethical standard and destroyed by a lack of commitment to those standards. You know, our whole society in Canada was built by certain ethical standards, and you know what? We're flaunting them, we're moving away from them, we laugh at them, we mock at them, and we're destroying our culture. We are. You know what? A society is waning when self-indulgence is rising. You know what people's attitude is today? I'm not committed to anything, you know. Hey, it's summertime. You know, I don't get it. I do not get it. I don't care what season we're in. You know, people take the whole summer off now. And you know, I don't know if you're a business owner today, but I think a lot of your employees, even though they're physically there, they're checked out when it comes summertime in Alberta. How many employers are here? Can I hear an amen? Nobody? A couple of you, yeah. People are checking out. Come on now. Some of you go, Pastor, I'm not even with you this morning. I've checked out. (laughs) It's summertime. What do you mean? We've got nice weather. It's Alberta. We don't get a lot of, you know, we have all these reasons, and yet when we say we're going to do something, do we do it? No. Hey, something, you know what people are like today? I'm preaching this morning. I'm really into this. I'm meddling. But I'm going to keep going because I think this is what needs to be said. You know, we, we don't plan anymore because something better might show up on the docket. And we're afraid if we commit to something, something better will come along and we'll lose that opportunity. But if you're a person of integrity and you make a commitment and something better comes along, you say to the better opportunity, I'm sorry, I have a prior commitment. And that says something about you as a person of integrity. But it's in short supply today because we won't make commitments. You know, it's really beautiful when you can say to somebody, that person you can depend on. You know what I like about God? He's dependable. You know what I like about God? He's faithful. What I like about God is when he makes a commitment, he carries it out even to the cost of his life. He is someone I can totally trust. But you know, when I look at human beings, I go, oh, it just depends. We have vacillating levels of commitment and trust inside of them. And there are some people, you know, there are some people I say, if they're going to say they're going to do it, it's done. But they are a small sliver of our culture. You know, there's a story that was told when I was a child. It kind of shaped my thinking. My mother tells of my grandfather, he was a godly person, you know. My, my family had all kinds of issues, the one I grew up in, but my grandparents were godly people, especially on my mom's side. My grandfather one day, he walked to town, which was three miles, he was a farmer. This is way back a long time ago, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, and he went to the store, and the clerk gave him 10 cents more than she should have. And he walked home, and when he pulled out his money, he looked, he realized he had been given 10 cents more, so he walked the three miles back to town to give the dime back to the store merchant so they wouldn't be out. That's what my mother remembered. That was the, the number one story of my grandfather. She told me that story, and it stuck inside of myself, and it taught me a lesson. Don't take advantage of other people. Even when you're the beneficiary of it, even if it's going to cost you something, make things right. That's commitment. That's powerful stuff. A number of years ago, a fascinating experiment was conducted by the National Institute of Mental Health. It was done in the United States. What they did was they put 160 mice in a cage that could support that designed to comfortably fit them. And for two and a half years, the colony, oh, they started out with eight mice. They put it in a, built a little colony for them. And it went from eight mice to 220 mice. Because what they were doing was they're giving them food, water, other resources. All of the mortality factors except aging were eliminated. And then Dr. Calhoun, who did the study, who was a research psychologist, began to witness a series of unusual phenomena among the mice as the population reached its peak. Within the cage from which the mice could not escape, the colony began to disintegrate. Adult, form, adult groups formed cliques 
of about a dozen mice in each group. In these groups, different mice perform particular social functions. The males who normally protected their territory withdrew from leadership and became uncharacteristically passive. The females became unusually aggressive and forced out the young. The young found themselves without a place in society and they grew increasingly more self-indulgent. They ate, they drank, they slept, and they groomed themselves but showed no normal assertiveness. The whole mouse society ultimately disrupted, and after five years, all the mice had died, even though there was an abundance of food, water, resources, and an absence of disease. What was the most interesting to the observers was the strong independence, the extreme isolationism of the mice, and this was greatly emphasized by the fact that courtship and mating, the most complex activity, were the first activities to cease. What result would, would similar conditions have on humanity? And then Calhoun says this, uh, Charles Swindoll is, is quoting him, he says that we would first of all, he says, what, what's the first thing you're going to see happen, you know, if we had, you know, this overpopulation of our world, all the rest of it, people felt their resources were diminished. He said, first of all, we would cease to re reproduce our ideas, along with our ideas, our goals, and our ideals, and our values would be lost. Interesting. But some of the characteristics as he was describing these things, I thought, you know, it's kind of describing a little bit about where our culture's at today. Can you hear it? Anybody hear these things? It's kind of, it's kind of eerily spooky. You go, well, that's just mice. Well, don't be so quick to just write that off. Our world is becoming largely impersonal. We're alienated from each other. Although crowded, we're lonely, we're distant, we're pushed together, but we're uninvolved. We're no longer do neighbors really connect with each other. The well-manicured front lawn is the modern moat that keeps barbarians at bay. Hoarding and flaunting have replaced sharing and caring. Isn't that kind of true in our cities? People are just concerned about the people just in their own little circle, kind of like that little clique, you know? And we don't seem to care about other people. Almost like other human beings don't count. And we're seeing this developed in our culture. So what is wisdom? Well, the Hebrew word literally means skill. And the Proverbs talk about instinctual skills by using the examples of various living creatures. In Proverbs 30, it says, Four things on earth are small, yet they're extremely wise. Uh, ants have a basic skill to prepare for the future. How many know that's true? That's wisdom. It's an instinctual skill. Uh, they, they know there's a time to work, a time to store up. They use the opportunities of the moment to be prepared for the future. So we're admonished, actually, to prepare our souls the same way the ants are preparing for their bodies. Now, we should be storing up. But not storing up what we think we should be storing up, you know? We shouldn't be storing up goods. We should be storing up the word of the Lord. And you say, why should we be storing up God's word? What happens if a crisis comes in your life? The people who have a daily devotional life and who are seeking God and are studying the word are storing up for their souls for the moment of crisis. How many here say, when crisis hits my life, I usually fall apart? How many want to be honest enough to say, usually that's how I handle it. I just come unglued. Okay? You know what I'm going to tell you? get into the Word of God. Get so strong in that book. And what'll, you're going to be shocked. The more you get into the Word of God, the more you're going to handle the difficult challenges ahead. You won't fall apart. You'll be strong. Okay? See, a lot of us, you know, we, get, we, we really come to prayer meeting when we have a crisis. Or we really get our act together with God when there's pressure in our life. No, don't do that. You need to learn to be disciplined. That's wisdom. You have to be like the ant. You, know, you ever see ants doing zero? You know, I've, I've got ants around our house. We have to try to get rid of them once in a while. And I notice these guys. They're busy. Anybody notice the ants are busy? They're moving. You know? They're doing something. It says, conies are, 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 okay, conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. So we're admonished here, as I've said, to store up God's word. Now, I love this. These creatures, these, this is instinctual wisdom. You know what a coney or a badger is? Let me show you a picture. Can you see it? 
Yeah, when we were in Israel, we actually went up to En Gedi, and they had these little rock badgers. That's a coney. And what do they do? They stay in the rocks, you know. So when you try to get them, good luck, because they're, they're into the rock. You know, what, what does this teach us? That you and I, when we're in Christ, we're standing on what? The rock. You know, God is my shelter and ever-present help in time of trouble. He is my refuge. He is my stronghold. And so when calamity or difficulty come my way, where do I find myself? In the rocks. In the rock, right? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Okay, so wisdom is not only described in these ways, but let me move on as instinctual, but it's also a technical skill. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 3, we read, Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such manners that they're to make garments for Aaron. So some people, wisdom is a skill. You know, a skill is pretty powerful. Some people have amazing skills. You know, maybe you've got great skills with your hands. Maybe you're a great woodworker or whatever. You have these amazing skills. That's wisdom. The Bible talks about wisdom as a skill. It talks about wisdom as an administrative and judicial ability. Now think about what God, Solomon, he's praying. What is he praying? He says, O oh Lord God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count to number. So give your servant a what? A discerning heart to govern your people. A judicial ability. Isn't it amazing when people have that skill to be able to decide what to do, when to do it, and how to do it? That's wisdom. You know, Solomon asked to distinguish between what was right and what was wrong. He said, help me to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Solomon asked to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. You know what our culture says? We distinguish between right and wrong. And by the way, that's the temptation that was in the first garden, that we have the right to distinguish between right and wrong. You know what the only problem is? Today, we, we don't have that ability. We, we don't see that, 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 that element in our society. We're being told that there is no distinction between right and wrong. We're, we're a culture that is sadly lacking wisdom. Isn't that true? We have no idea. As a matter of fact, listen to this. I, you know, I had to look it up. I knew it was in the Bible. I've read this so many times. I just go, which prophet said it? So I went to my concordance, and I went to the prophetic books, because I knew it was there. And Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those you think there's not a woe happening in our country today before Almighty God? My goodness. And you know, this was really sad. Young minister told one of our staff, you know, you know, do you believe God's really going to judge Canada? And he started laughing like this was funny. This isn't a Christian. This is somebody who's in the ministry. I go, you know, folks, we, we got to start thinking a little differently here. You know, God, how many can say God loved Israel? Did God love his people? But he said, woe to you. He was not saying, this was written to Christians. Well, godly people, Old Testament godly people, woe to you. You guys are so stupid, he said. You can't even discern between what is right and what is wrong. And we are living in that moment in our own culture. We can't figure it out anymore. We're confused. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Aren't we living in a time like this? You know, Isaiah was warning them, hey, guys, smarten up. If you don't shape up and get right with God, you're going to go into captivity. You know, we're acting... You know, I, I'm the kind of person I start looking at what's going on. Go, you know, I wonder if God's allowing a recession to come across Canada to smarten us up. Who we can't figure out right from wrong, and we think we're smart. You think we're that smart as human beings? No, I don't think we're that smart. I think we're going to make mistakes. I think we got to be a little more humble than that. I think we got to say, God, we don't know right from wrong. You do. You know, Lord, what's right. You know what's wrong. 
and help me to follow your pathway. The fundamental underlying issue is not whether there's a right or a wrong in our culture today. We're not, we'll not commit to standing for the right. How about that one? As Christians now, we're just going, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to be politically incorrect. I don't want people to think I'm weird. I don't want people to think I'm out of step with the culture. Folks, if you're a true child of God that believes in the Bible, you are politically incorrect and out of step. You are a minority in this culture. Have you figured that out yet? You know? Now, I think the way we communicate, you know, you don't have to be an idiot about it. That's our problem sometimes, you know, the way we come at it. But, I mean, use a little tact and common sense. But, you know, you can challenge people in their premises very nicely. Just go, you know, where did you come up with that idea? Does that really work? You know, there's, there's ways of doing it is what I'm getting at. One of the reasons why Jesus was so successful in dealing with his critics and adversaries was that he was filled with wisdom. How many go, that was true? You know, and he was able to distinguish between what was right and what was wrong. Wow, I think that's right. You know, wisdom is also social skills. Proverbs teaches us how to develop, you know, social skills. Wisdom is the law by which God rules the world. You know, paganism actually believes in chance. Do you know that's true? Do you know how stupid astrology is? Have you ever thought about it? People are reading their horoscopes. Like some sort of, the day I'm born, you know, it's all going to make a difference. Can I just tell you how stupid this is? I'll give you one classic example. Look at Esau and Jacob. How many know those guys were on totally different frequencies? They were twins born on the same day. Don't tell me the stars can tell you your destiny. Okay. By the way, God forbids us to practice that. Because what we're saying is, I'm not trusting God. I'm a, I want an edge on life. I want to know what the future holds. I'm committed to God and his ways, not to the ways of this world. You say, why am I saying this? Because a lot of Christians read their horoscopes. Getting real quiet in here. Pastor, you're, you're really getting nasty today. I mean, I've never seen you like this. You're just like, you know, picking on people today. But you know, I have to be this blunt. Why? Because there's a lack of wisdom. And there's a lack of wisdom because there's a lack of commitment to God and his word and his ways. I'm not trying to make you a bunch of critics or nasty people. I'm just trying to tell you, in your own personal life, in my own personal life, we've got to get our act together. Right? You know, we can condemn the culture, but you know what I say? If the culture's sliding, who's responsible for that? We are, it's the church. Are we the people that we should be? Are we standing up when we should? Should we be speaking up? Are we speaking up when we should be? Are we presenting to them a better option? Even if people don't choose it, at least we're saying it. You know, I don't think, you know, good old Noah. I mean, not everybody was listening to Noah. But I don't think Noah didn't say nothing. I think he was preaching. I can prove it to you. In the book of Jude, he was preaching righteousness. And I think the very way he was living, building an ark, how many know that was a little different? And I'm sure a few people came over and goes, what's this old kook doing over here, you know? And, you know, Noah, you're not even relevant to the times. I want you to know Noah was more relevant to the times than anybody else living in his time. Because he knew what was about to come because God had told him. And listen, folks, we need to know something. We are standing on the precipice of Christ's return to this planet. And he's going to judge this world for the things they've done right and the things they've done wrong. Is that not true? I've read my Bible. That's what it says. But we're just kind of lollygagging down life, you know. We're more concerned about our next vacation, our next trip, our next this, our next that. Ooh, now I'm really meddling. But is that not true? What about the people around us? They're perishing. And so instead of condemning the culture for where it's at, we've got to take a hard look at where we're at. We're saying, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? Are we burdened? Are we praying? Are we sharing? Are we standing up? Are we saying, you know what? I just can't let this continue on this way. I'm committed to doing the right thing. I need to be involved in serving Christ at a higher level. I need to make a major difference in my life, or am I just going to sit around and go, you know, it doesn't really matter. Let somebody else do it. I've, you know, and you know, as we get older as Christians, we say, well, you know, I, 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 this is the classic. 
I put my time in. Where do we get that in the Bible? You know, like, let somebody else do it. Listen, I hate to shatter this. I don't read anywhere in the Bible that you can retire from life. I think you can slow down. I don't have a problem with that. But this idea that I'm going to kick back and enjoy life and do whatever I want to now that I'm retired, show me that in the Bible. It's not there. Until the day you're in heaven, you got a job to do. Can I say that again? Until the day you're in heaven, you got a job to do. You better figure it out. Now, I think God will say, hey, you've got to slow down. You're, you know, you're getting older and you can't do as much. I understand that. I'm getting older and I'm going, yeah, I better slow down a little bit. And I'm having a hard time slowing down because there's a lot to do. But I know I've got to slow down. But you know what that says in a body like ours? Everybody's got to do their part. Everybody's got to do their part. It's true. We can't just sit back and go, somebody else do it, you know? When you know the fundam- don't know the fundamental principles to life, it leads to embarrassment and loss. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this, Wisdom is not uh, knowing and understanding what God is doing, for that is the ultimate expression of presumption. Nobody knows what God's totally doing. I mean, let's face it, he's God, right? He goes on to say, Rather, wisdom realize that God is all-wise and his ways are past finding out. Wisdom then consists in choosing the best means to the best ends. That's very powerful. In other words, I'm doing exactly what God's telling me to do, and I believe that if I do what he's telling me to do today, that'll take me where I'm supposed to go. Right? You know, I'm convinced that the real tests in life are not with the right ends. Most people want to do the right thing. If you talk to the average person, they, everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. Vast majority. I, I think that there's, a, some, there's some exceptions to that. But the vast majority of people are thinking, I'm doing the right thing. But the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So what it says to me is there's a lot of people, you know, they're living life, they think they're doing all the right things, but it could be the wrong thing. And you know, you and I could be doing the wrong thing at times, and we think we're doing the right thing. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? I think most people want to do the right thing. The temptation comes to use the wrong means to the right ends. In other words, I have the right goal in mind, but I'm not using the right means to get there. And then, then we make the declaration, the ends justify the means. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was about to go to the way of the cross, what did Peter say to him? <laughs> no, 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 you don't need to do that, Jesus. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, I know where this argument's coming from. Sounds good. I mean, suffering? You know, we don't want people to suffer, Pastor. We, don't, we have a whole culture. Doesn't it sound good that we don't want anybody to suffer? Doesn't that sound like God? Or does it sound more like Satan? Now I got you guys wondering. Right? Come on, I've got you wondering. Because in that story, we know that Jesus had to suffer. He said, well, that's Jesus. He has to suffer for us. Nobody has to suffer then. Don't go there either. It'll get you into trouble. Because the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience by the things in which he... Do you mean God's going to let you and me suffer? Boy, I'll tell you, there's a theology out there that teaches nobody should suffer. Jesus did all the suffering. We should get off the hook. Isn't that true? Is that God's theology? Yeah. I'm just pointing some things out to us. Why am I doing this? I'm, I'm trying to get you to think. I'm trying to get you to a little bit rattled today. How many are getting, feeling a little agitated? You get a little rattled with the pastor. He's stirring the pot. Why is he doing that? You know, Peter was trying to t- encourage Jesus to take a different means, the wrong means to achieve the right ends. Was he not? Yes, he was. And Jesus identified it and said, that's not from God. You know, the devil said to Jesus in the temptation, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of this world. All you've got to do is worship me. By the way, does Jesus get all the kingdoms of this world? Yeah, by not worshiping him. But he has to go the way of the cross to do that. 
And then the Bible says at the end, God says, the kingdoms of our Lord are going to, you know, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Wow. And how many know that most people in our society today want to take a shortcut to arrive at the right ends? And so they're taking the wrong vehicle to get there. Because, you know, all the shortcuts are really changing and shortcutting character development in our lives. And then we can't understand why people who now come to these places of leadership can't sustain the realm of leadership they're in because they've taken all these shortcuts and when the crisis comes, they're underdeveloped and they can't handle the pressures. I'm saying a lot today. I'm pointing things out. You know, Packer continues on. Well, let me just say this first. The problem with the wrong means is that it destroys the value and meaning of the ends. Something gets lost in the equation. Packer says, it is expressed in trusting God when we don't comprehend what is happening in our lives. In other words, wisdom really simply means that, you know what? I don't understand what's going on, but I still trust God. I still believe that he's taking me where I need to get to, even though this looks like I'm in a wrong location. How many have ever felt that in your life? You're going, I have no idea what God's doing. And you know, this seems like a forever process. And we're not getting anywhere, it seems like. And it just seems like he's grinding on you. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Yeah. And all I'm pointing out to us is, don't be surprised if the very thing you resent and get frustrated with and hate is the very tool that God is doing and using to make you the person he wants you to become. You know, you know how, many, how many ever had a job you just hated? Anybody ever have a job? It doesn't have to be a long-term job. You just hated this job, you know? I graduate from college, and, you know, I get this little job, and I'm, you know, they, it, I'm doing maintenance, you know. Last thing I know about maintenance, right? I'm the worst person to ask to do this. But anyways, but they give me something where it's a no-brainer. It doesn't take a lot of skill. So they said, okay, we're going to fix up here. I'm sitting. And I, this was a very down point in my life. I'm sitting on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. Some of you might know where that is. Seattle has all these hills. And, you know, there's buses driving all along. And I'm digging out. She says, could you please get rid of the grass between the cracks? I'm a graduate of college digging out grass between the cracks, you know. You know, that's pretty humbling. How many know that's a good, good exercise for a college graduate to do something that's humbling? Because you can get full of yourself. You know, I'm digging out grass between the cracks. And what added insult to injury is the, you know, the Seattle Metro, they have diesel buses, they pull up, and then they just blow that diesel in your face, you know, and going... You know, I was having a pity party there on the side of the hill going, God, I've sacrificed to go to school. I should be going into ministry. What am I doing? I'm digging grass between the cracks and the buses are shooting diesel in my face. You know, this is no fun. God goes, oh, but I'm training you. Isn't isn't what he was doing? He's going, you're just too full of yourself. This is a good exercise for you. There should be nothing we do that's demeaning to us if it's legitimate work. Washing dishes, throwing out garbage, cleaning toilets, none of those things are diminishing. They all have value. Work is noble. True. It is true. But we get full of ourselves, you know. I want to tell people what to do, you know. Now that I'm doing what I'm, you know, I always wanted to do, I go, this is not so much fun, you know, telling people what to do. Because you can mess people up. You can hurt people. You can destroy people. It's so easy. You have to learn the process. Well, I'm going to stop here this morning. That's okay. Didn't finish the sermon, but I think I'm driving the point home. Are we learning something? What am I telling you in closing? You will never gain wisdom until you commit yourself 100% to God and say, God, here I am. I'm totally committed. And then wisdom will start coming your way. Isn't that beautiful? What does God need for me? What does God need for me? Commitment. And what does commitment mean? What does he need from me? Trust. He needs everything. He says, give me everything. If you give me everything, 
you will have wisdom. Because if you give me everything, your hopes, your fears, your aspiration, your dreams, your disappointments, and you commit them all to me, and even though you don't understand me, you keep following me, you will walk the path of wisdom. Because none of us know everything. None of us understand everything. But if we're following the one who does, we're a wise person. If we're listening to what God has to say to us, and by the way, this is where we find out what he has to say to us, we will be able to handle the things that come into our lives that seem to be beyond us because we will have wisdom. You know, wisdom is knowing what to do, when to do it. And some of us go, Pastor, when I get in those situations, I haven't got a clue what to do. What am I telling you? You need to give yourself 100% to God. You need to walk with him every single day. You need to listen to what he has to say every single day. And when those moments come, you will have wisdom. Let's stand. I could have said a lot more. I got a lot more notes. But I'll stop today and just say this, you know. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I want to walk in wisdom. I want to walk in wisdom. I want to do the right thing. I, I don't even mind being politically incorrect, Pastor. I don't have a problem with that. I just want to walk in wisdom. Oh, by the way, I don't even mind standing against the tide. Do you know why you're going to be courageous? Because you're going to have to be. Because our culture is deteriorating. And you know these wonderfully beautiful people out there that are very smart? They're living in a state of deception. And they're heading headlong into destruction. Do you know that? And if we tell them we love them and we just go, see ya, and let them go headlong into destruction, I go, that's not loving people. I think you've got to slow them down. How do you do that? Ask questions. You know, just great questions like, you think that's the right way to do it? Just asking them. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you think the way you think? You know, we had this wedding yesterday and it was two nice young men and they never grew up in the church and they don't have any belief in God. And I go, you know, like I, the classic line, I just loved it. He goes, my parents are letting me choose. Choose what? Between, you know, if there's a God or not a God. And I said, well, okay, so you went to school and were taught there was no God. So what have you done to find out if there is one? I just asked a question. Nothing, he said. I said, oh. Then... You're making, you don't really, ha you know, really, does he have the, the ability to make a good choice? Of course not. See what I'm saying? Ask questions. I'm not telling them what to do. I just asked a question. Who knows what God's going to do? Rattle that in your head a little bit. So I said to him, you know, listen to the sermon. You'll find out that Christians actually think. We see life differently. We'll talk about human relationships here in this message. I'm going to talk about how to have a healthy marriage because he's married. And he was listening. Because you know what? He's not exposed to this stuff. And I was saying radical stuff yesterday. Really radical stuff. Just like I'm doing today. You can imagine. Wheels are turning. Why am I doing this to you today? Because I'm afraid that we're embracing the same value system the culture has. No commitment. No commitment. No experience with God. You've got to commit first, folks, if you're going to have the experience. How many say, Pastor, I'm committed? I'm committed. Not only that, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. When I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Oh, but, you know, things come along. Yeah, but you said you're going to do it. I read Psalm 15 on purpose. It was a trick psalm. <laughs> right? If you say you're going to do it, you swore to your own hurt. Yeah, but now it's going to cost me more than I thought. Yeah, that's the way it is with commitment. It always costs you more than you think. Right? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to walk in wisdom. That means we've got to be committed. And commitment takes us to places we don't want to go. We don't want to go to the cross. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to die to ourselves. That's the truth. But Lord, that's the way to life. That's the way to victory. That's the way to peace and joy. And that's the way to the whole Christian life. 
And so I pray today that you will help us to be committed. And Lord, that we will just say, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done in me. Your will be done in us. Your will be done in this congregation, oh God. That you can have your full sway in our lives. We thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to make such a deep commitment that we will live this out in our everyday lives. That we will really, Lord, be committed to knowing you and hearing your voice and doing what you're asking us to do. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.